0: BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely.
1: From KQED.
0: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... Alameda County public health officials now say it's okay to create a so-called social bubble during the pandemic, or a consistent group of up to 12 friends or relatives to socialize with. Some people have already been making these kinds of pandemic pods or quarantines, as they realize they need to create social interaction that's more sustainable for themselves or their kids. So in this hour, we look at how to create these bubbles safely and in ways that can be supportive and healing. Join the conversation after this news. This is Forum from KQED. I'm Mina Kim. Alameda County has expanded its shelter-in-place order to allow for social bubbles, which they define as up to 12 people from different households getting together and socializing, though still at a distance and outside. And you can only belong to one bubble at a time, which means navigating the process of who to bring in and who to leave out, as well as having open and honest conversations about comfort levels around risk. But for those who've already made their own pandemic pods, and let's be real, there are many people who have, they say the initial awkwardness is well worth the healing and connection that can be found in these rapidly changing times. And we want to hear from you. Have you made similar arrangements? How's it working out? What are your questions about structuring your social lives in safe and sustainable ways? Joining me is Mia Birdsong. She's author of How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friends friendship, and community. Thanks for joining us on Forum, Mia Birdsong. Thanks for having me back. Also with us is Christina Catarucci. She's a staff writer for Slate. Welcome to the program, Christina Catarucci. Great to be here. And I'm saying your last name correctly, right, Christina? You are. <laughs> okay. Good. And also joining us is Dr. Erica Pond. She's the health officer of Alameda County. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Pond. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So I gave a little bit of information about Alameda County's, you know, social bubble guidelines, but do you want to say more? Is there some important information that I left out there?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. I know this is a, a new concept uh, and I think the other background is uh, the model or the, the language around this uh, originated in New Zealand. So I want to give them credit and uh, we we had started to think about, you know, households has really been the original bubble that we wanted people to stay in as far as kind of staying within a confined group of people during shelter at home. Um, And now as we're feeling like, uh, and and understanding and acknowledging, as you just mentioned, we need to be able to expand outside that, and people, um, you know, are really craving more social connection, trying to do that in as um, graduated and safe a way as possible. Um, So again, as you said, it's really... um, Right now, we really want to encourage people to do this outdoors only. And it's really ideally just expanding to maybe one or, or possibly two other households and expanding kind of the, your household support unit is another way of thinking about it to be able to support each other and have that social connection, but continue to do it safely.
0: How did you come up with 12 as the maximum in a group?
2: Sure. Uh, one reason was because we had already been allowing for childcare to happen in groups of 12 and wanting to have some consistency around um, one social bubble, you know, is, of course, a household unit and expanding that household group to um, up to 12 others and then allowing for kids to have their own child care bubbles that we had already allowed in that, in that um, amount. And, and then we also expanded it to allow for extracurricular social bubbles for kids. So, you know, over the summer uh, now that some kids may be in a camp, but um, if they're not in a camp and they want to do another extracurricular activity, whether it's a sports team or a religious school uh, or some other extracurricular activity, you know, again, the idea is to keep it uh, in a small group and a stable group for as, as um, long as possible. So we tried to put some guardrails around, you know, three weeks is a minimum, longer is better. Uh, we also put out sort of a risk chart to try to explain to people what is lowest risk and what is highest risk. So we're kind of moving from you know, lowest risk is open space, no physical contact, no shared surfaces, moderate risk is smaller outdoor gatherings, still with physical distancing, um, still with the briefest contact, the better, and low mixing in the community. So this is allowing for a very small amount of mixing in the community, but again, trying to stay in this moderate risk range while we still have... Um, as we slowly sort of open it and see how that impacts disease transmission.
0: So based on what you're saying, I feel like what I'm hearing is that you had this sense either that it was already happening that people were gathering in groups or that people will be needing to, and it would be better to give some guidelines on, guidelines on how to do it effectively rather than, say, have strict guidelines that people are more likely to not follow. Um, but that said, is it realistic to expect people to socially distance even when they're... Together in this pod the whole time.
2: I think you know. Again, we still want to um, give people the information on what is the lowest risk, and we still, you know, strongly recommend it. I think, as you're mentioning, some, some people are going to take more risk than others. Um, and I think we do acknowledge, certainly, with childcare units, that kids are going to have a much harder time socially, physically distancing. Right. Um, so, so we have acknowledged that you know within these bubbles. Um, they you know, physical distancing is strongly recommended. And again, outdoors is lower risk, but we do want to give people that information and, and do what is feasible.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Christina Cotterucci, you have created this, well, what Alameda calls a social bubble. Is that what, what you call it? <laughs>
3: We call ours a pod, but, you know, we're not picky about names. You can call us
0: whatever you want. <laughs> so tell us the process uh, that you went through to, to create this. It kind of happened naturally, it sounds like.
3: It did. Yeah, it was a really organic process. So um, my wife and I had two other couples that we were hanging out with actually the night right before D.C. where we live started closing down um, when the pandemic was just ramping up. And we kept in contact with those people because they're friends of ours. And after a while, the more, you know, we learned about how the virus spread, the more it became clear that our lockdown would last much longer than we had initially anticipated, the more we started talking about calculated risks that we might be willing to take. For us, that meant uh, considering the six of us to be one family, basically, or household. So um, I think we, Uh, operate in a little bit of a less conservative way than what Alameda County is recommending where we do go into each other's houses, we hug, we cook food for each other, um, but we don't do that with anyone but the six of us. So um, we were thinking, you know, this is a way to make our lockdown more sustainable mentally and emotionally Um, it's also been a lot more convenient, to be perfectly honest. You know, one person can go out and grocery shop and pick up stuff for the other people in the household, which we definitely don't do with anyone else. And uh, as D.C. has begun to reopen in the last week or two, we don't feel as desperate to sort of get out there and take advantage of the restaurants or the salons reopening because we're not starved for human contact.
0: And those could arguably be more higher risk activities as well. You mentioned that you only do this with the six of you, but that means there must be a really high level of trust that none of you will engage with other people.
3: Definitely. I mean, I would not have felt comfortable doing this with anybody but people I completely trust. And um, I feel really lucky that the friends that are in my bubble um, two of them we already sort of had a, a family like relationship with the other two people in our bubble we've quickly become a lot closer because of the kinds of conversations that are necessary when you're forming something like this it's a lot of conversations about uh you know are we on the same page in terms of the science that we're reading because it's changing all the time and everybody's mm-hmm. got a different idea of how much risk is out there and how much risk they're willing to take we found people who we are on the same page about all that stuff with and people who we are being completely honest with where we know, You know, we all check in with each other before we do something. I'm going to a protest. Do you guys feel okay with that? Or should we distance after we go to this protest? Um, I am planning on going on a walk with a friend, wearing masks, socially distanced. Do you feel comfortable if I do that? So it involves a lot of communication and not just at the beginning, but throughout the endurance of your pod because you know, everybody is still living their lives and making decisions every day.
0: Has there ever been any tension around somebody asking for something that the group didn't feel comfortable with, but the person really wanted to do or something?
3: Mm -hmm. There was one occasion where, so we have another friend, a mutual friend of all of ours, who has an essential job. Um, So she's been going out and interacting with communities, including some that are at higher risk for um, coronavirus complications. Um, her partner wanted to hang out with us, um, or, or wanted to hang out with somebody in our pod. And we said, you know, if you do hang out with this person, we would like you to make even more precautions than you would. So instead of saying, staying six to 10 feet apart, stay further apart than that, where i mask the entire time, even when you're further apart than that, you know, and if you feel like either of you is starting to not obey those rules. Maybe it's not okay to hang out. Um, so that that involved a little bit more conversation, and and I think they ended up deciding that it just wasn't worth it.
0: Interesting. We're talking about social bubbles, which is something that Alameda County is now saying is okay, or in other words, gathering with groups of up to twelve other people to socialize under certain conditions. And uh, we're talking with Christina Catarucci, a staff writer for Slate, about her experience of creating one, and Dr. Erica Pond, Alameda County Health Officer. And you are listeners about this. I mean, we want to hear have you made similar arrangements? What are your questions about structuring your social lives in these ways? Uh, and generally about creating these, navigating the process of actually creating one. Give us a call at 866 733 6786. Again, 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Mia Birdsong is with us. How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community is the title of her book. And Mia Birdsong, song you haven't necessarily created this formal um pandemic pod or social bubble have you no (laughs) but you have found really deep ways to create community in spite of that and i was wondering if you could share some of that with us in these times
4: yeah so and part of what i want to just just lift up is that um i feel like alameda county is making a very smart move and recognizing Mm -hmm. that If they don't provide some instruction about how people can create um, bubbles that people are going to end up doing it anyway. Um, So I feel like the harm reduction approach is really important here. Um, And I also just want to point out that, you know, the process that Christina and her wife and their friends went through was an organic one. And I think one of the challenges is that most people don't actually know how to do that. so part of what I learned in, in the research that I did for my book that I feel like deeply applies here is that there, we're, we're looking at, you know, instructing people on kind of things about how to create a pod is one thing. I think there's a level of um, communication that a lot of us are not um, comfortable with or don't even know how to practice um, that is required to actually do it in a way that is consistent and safe. Um, and I think we're looking at both kind of conversations around consent and conversations um, around uh, c- communication, right? Um, and that the people who I feel like I've learned the most um, about how to, how to have those conversations well are in kind of unexpected places. So I look at um, certainly like queer communities very broadly but then very specifically, um, the BDSM community, um, folks who have who have had lots of who have done lots of work around consent when it comes to um, sex and um, romantic relationships, have practiced a lot of the, the the skills that we need to understand about how to have consensual conversations about um, creating pods as well. Um, and and I think the other thing that I've learned is um, what it means to have these conversations. Um, and recognize the kinds of power dynamics that exist in relationships. So, for the person who feels the least comfortable um, with risk, it becomes challenging for them to continually assert the fact that, like, their comfort their comfort with risk is really low. So, the other people in relationship with them, if they're creating a pod, actually have to be um, uh, actively asking them. If they feel comfortable with things that the group is deciding as opposed to assuming that they do if they don't say anything Um, and I think those kinds of conversations around consent are not ones that that many of us are comfortable with. So the, the other thing which goes to the question that you asked me is that you know, one of the things that Christina brought up was that one person in their pod can go grocery shopping for everyone. Um, I have relationships with people who I'm not in a pod with, but who we are collectively grocery shopping for each other. So you don't actually have to live to, or, you know, kind of create a family unit um, in order to have some of the benefits that you would have from pods. Um, So I have a friend who, you know, texts a group of us every time she goes grocery shopping and asks if we need anything. Part of what I feel like I've learned from that process is that the other thing that we really need to understand is like how to ask for and welcome and receive the kind of support that we need. Um, initially, when she asked, you know, when she was sending these texts to ask if people need anything, I I was reluctant to say yes because I know what a pain in the butt it is to go grocery shopping. Um, but if I was out of something essential like salt. And she could get that for me. That meant I could go another week without having to go to the grocery store. Um, So I think there are ways in which we can kind of think about, it's not about having a pod or not having a pod, um, but what are the kind of in-between places where we can create a little bit more um, support and community with each other so that we're feeling less burdened by the tasks that Mm -hmm. we have to do or um, the lack of social um, connection.
0: And maybe what you're describing would be more... Uh, uh, for this listener who tweets, risk is cumulative. These people do not understand this. The larger the bubble, the greater the risk to the people. Bad idea. Um, they might not be seeking out a pod situation. Um, Ron asks, a pod or bubble has at most 12 people, right? How many pods can one person belong to at most? Erica Pon? Uh
2: Sure. So right now what we're guiding people is ideally excuse me, ideally you only have one pod at a time for at least three weeks or longer. And again, longer is better. And I also just wanted to add I love hearing um, this conversation because the other term that we thought about calling it or that we think about it is a household support unit. So I think combining a lot of these concepts that that people are embracing this with are about, yeah, how do you support your family or your loved ones and support each other um, in a safe way?
0: Well, Patrice writes, there seems to be an assumption here about what constitutes a household. Many of us are in housemate situations without sharing family and friends, and we don't typically consult each other on social interactions. What are the guidelines for us? Christina Cotterucci, do you have any thoughts for Patrice? I was
3: actually just talking to a colleague about this today who's in uh, a house with a roommate who uh, insists on his right to go out and date and hook up with people. Um, which I think is is universally not recommended right now to be dating and hooking up with multiple people during this pandemic. Um, so she feels like she can't go out and do anything because, you know, he's sort of using up all of the, the risk, if you want to call it that. And so she's sort of closing off her end of the bubble while the other end remains open-ended. I think that's really difficult. And um, I certainly don't envy people in Housemates situations where they don't feel comfortable even having these conversations, it's a lot harder to have that sort of um, mutual trust and reliance on one another if you during a pandemic, if you didn't have that at the beginning of it. I would say that um, it's it's necessary to um, develop that, develop some ground rules if if any of you plan on being in bubbles. I mean, if you're living with people. They're basically part of your bubble, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, unless you really have a situation where you don't have to share a bathroom, don't have to share a kitchen, don't have to share common spaces. Um, So I would say I really hope that some roommates can listen to this segment and and open up some conversations about um, how everybody can reduce risk for the entire household
4: what christina's pointing to um, me i have heard from a lot of people as well just friends of mine who have roommates and that they didn't have relationships with you know these are just kind of people they ended up living with because of you know they found each other on craigslist or something um and without having uh the kinds of communication and, and relationship that they need in order to like build some consensus um around what they're agreeing to they are also feeling um they're feeling like somebody is putting them at risk, and they don't want that. So there's, I feel like there's also a conversation to be had around um, agency, and that part of what we we have to kind of reckon with when it comes to creating these kinds of relationships is that you have to actually you're putting a group's well being. Um, in front of your own, um, so we we lose a little bit of agency that way, and I think there's a way in which you know certainly Americans, because we so deeply value our independence, um, are challenged around this in a way that I think some other cultures are not. Huh.
0: Interesting. Actually, it kind of reminds me of that point, Christina Cotarucci, that you make in your article, which I really loved. You wrote the whole process of trying to form a pod. The whole process felt vaguely familiar, though, as queer people were all accustomed to the heavy processing required around non-monogamous relationships and non-traditional family making. And I think what I hear both you and Mia talking about is being equipped to be able to have these kinds of conversations and build this community in part because you are diverging from sort of the status quo and mainstream culture. (laughs) Exactly.
3: And I think we as queer people are already sort of used to um, establishing our own community rules outside of the norm and abiding by those rules Um, and you know at this point in time it can be scary for a lot of people when you know state and local and federal governments diverge wildly on what they're telling people Mm -hmm. when scientists don't know what's going on because it's a brand new disease And when decisions made around opening up are made based uh, in in many cases on politics and not based on the actual status of, you know, the pandemic in the community. So I think we feel a lot more comfortable having developed these rules within our pod that regardless of what Mayor Bowser here in D.C. says we can or can't do, um, we, you know, are trusting that we're doing what's comfortable and right for us.
0: Well, let me go to Elaine in Castro Valley. Hi, Elaine. Join us.
4: Uh, you've kind of touched on this, but I've got uh, two older teenage uh, kids, and my husband and I, and obviously the kids don't want the same pot as us. So, mm. Do we each get 12 people, or does the household get
2: 12 people?
0: Erica Pond.
2: <laughs> sure. Um so the way we have put it into our uh, our health officer order and and what we recommend is that the household can have like a a bubble again for a sort of a household support unit and then children can have a separate overlapping bubble um but really trying to keep it to one uh overlapping bubble for the for each kid. So and each kid can have their own, to your point, because your kids are gonna have, you know, a different set of friends or a different age appropriate camp or extracurricular activity. Um, but really trying to keep it to um, you know, one one extended household bubble and then each kid can have either um, if they're younger, it's a child care or a camp, or if you have teenagers, maybe they have one smaller group of friends that they each stay in a stable group with um, to follow some similar rules with and, and really limiting it to that.
0: Mm, though it sounds like there is a lot of negotiating that's in their mm-hmm. future. <laughs> Dina <laughs> writes, I re- I realize that forming bubbles will make life much easier for my children who have elementary age I realize that forming bubbles will make life much easier for my children. It also means that my husband and I will not be able to see them and definitely not be part of their bubbles. Bubbles will effectively isolate older people even more. Seniors and people of color are bearing the greater burden for the virus. So Dina says her children have elementary age children themselves and that that would increase the risk of her engaging with them. And then thus could be could mean that seniors might be uh, isolated even more it actually reminds me of this other point that this listener writes bubbles are mostly unattainable for people who need to navigate child custody or work high risk essential jobs i already know people who are creating their own pods but they're not following the strict protections necessary i feel like this is a reckless concept that doesn't really take into account how much privilege someone needs to create one safely it's an interesting point mia bird song we just have about 20 seconds right now before yeah. break but just you know yeah people might be hesitant to to pod with somebody who's in an essential job, which what, you know, what does that do of for course. them?
4: And we kind of have to to pay attention to our own, uh, our own levels of comfort with risk. But I also think that part of what this is about is harm reduction. Um, people do this anyway. Um, so creating guidelines for it seems really important. And part of what I'd like to see um, counties do is create
0: Well, more after the break, we'll get right to that. This is Forum from KQED. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how Alameda County has expanded its shelter-in-place order to allow social bubbles or up to 12 people from different households to get together and socialize, though they recommend still at a distance and outside. And we're hearing from you about your reaction to this, whether or not you've made similar arrangements, what you think will come as a result. Going into the break, we were talking about how some of these bubbles might not work for seniors or not be available to essential Workers and Mia Birdsong, you were saying that uh, that you would like to see counties
4: do something. What was that? Yeah. So part of it is that I think that you know, kind of pointing to what Christina was bringing up about how organic the process was for them and and some of the ways in which they had these conversations. Um, but that the I think generally our our population you know, people are not prepared for those kinds of conversations. I would love to see counties create some questionnaires or some checklists that allow people to kind of scaffold. Um, their ability to have conversations that are really focused on kind of consent and um, consensus building um, and I think that the point that that one of the listeners wrote in about privilege is a really important one the way that I feel like I'm I'm thinking about my privilege so my kid my son goes to um, has a school that has a camp and um, they decided to have camp this year this summer because many of the parents, um, have to go back to work. So we don't have like my, I know I work from home. Um, we're able to keep our son home. So even though I would love for him to be at camp this summer, part of what we're doing for that community is actually staying home so that the people who really need to send their kids to camp can, Um, so I agree with, you know, the listener who said that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of privilege in being able to um, create a pod if you do not have somebody who's an essential worker in your community. But I think there are other ways in which um, we should be thinking about how we leverage the privilege we have so that we're protecting um, essential workers. Mm. And again,
0: and Mia also, Birdsong it... is author of How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. We also have Dr. Erica Pond with us, Alameda County Health so- Health Officer, and Christina Cattarucci, a staff writer for Slate, is with us as well. And you, our listeners, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786 with your questions or comments. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at KQED. UED.org. And Christina Cotter, would you? was that you who wanted to jump in here?
3: Yeah, I would add to that, that I, I think there are ways, as Mia was saying earlier, to get some of the benefits of being in a pod in the lowest risk way possible. So for somebody who has an essential job, that might mean excluding um, seniors and other people with higher risk for uh, severe coronavirus complications from their pod. But if you have lower risk people and maybe people who are also essential workers engaging in social activities that are distanced, masked, you know, outdoors, um, it feels to me at least like depending on your tolerance for risk, there could be ways to still get that social connection and support.
0: Um, Well, Matt asks, are there any guidelines to forming a bubble when both parents are essential workers? Do any of these exist on Alameda County's website, Dr. Pond?
2: So we haven't gotten that specific but I would just like to echo um my colleagues uh here that I think it is so much as as we're discussing about sort of having those conversations and sort of consenting and understanding I can even just speak from a personal level as well that both my husband and I are essential workers and so um you know our social bubble needs to know and understand that that potential risk that we have been you know working um in the healthcare setting and in public health every day Um, And so it's all about um, being able to understand and consent to that level of risk. And and for seniors, I think, you know, we really do want seniors to think of this as an opportunity to be able to interact with each other um, to others' points that some of the seniors are the most vulnerable but also the most isolated. So if they can pick, and I would suggest a much smaller group, you know, maybe it's really um, three to four people that they can interact with and and have more social interaction with um, and have, again, some agreements about what are the other external um, you know, risk that they are willing to know that each other are taking.
0: Though one of the things I do have to say that I'm hearing from listeners is a general sense that maybe this this allowing of bubbling is optimistic, maybe even reckless or irresponsible. What's your response to that, Dr. Pond?
2: Um, I I really appreciate the other um the other speaker about harm reduction. And that's so much in public health, what we are about is harm reduction. And I think some people have talked about this similar to, you know, with uh, sexually transmitted disease, Transmission and, you know, some campaigns that try to just promote abstinence only are not effective. There's a lot of data to show that that's not effective. And we're all humans, and we need that um, social connection. So we really want to try to give people the information they can to be empowered to make the best decisions they can for themselves. And and just like with um, other interactions and uh, other harm reduction, people are going to have different um, uh, levels of risk they are willing to take for themselves or their loved ones, um, but being able to give people, again, that information about what's lowest risk, what's highest risk, and having some of those hard conversations that we've been talking about and, and being able to have agreements amongst groups.
0: And, Christina Cotterucci, is it safe to say that you actually see these pods as a public health benefit? I feel like I, I heard you kind of wrestling with that in your, in your piece and then coming to the conclusion that really, ultimately, that this is better. 100%.
3: Um, and, and part of that comes just from, uh, you know, the idea that it is a structure to form so that people aren't just sort of willy nilly going out and hanging out with people with no idea who those people who have hung out with, you know, I've had people come and say to me, sort of bring up their lessons from sex ed, which is, you know, well, if you sleep with one person, you've technically slept with all the people that that person has slept with. What a, what a bubble does or a pod does is let you know that you're only sleeping with each other, or in this case, hanging out with each other. Or only sharing um, each
0: other's germs, I
3: guess. Yeah, like I, exactly. I heard them referred to as That's germ bubbles More as accurate, well. <laughs> thank you. Um, and so in that way, it it not only minimizes your risk because you're closed off as much as you can be from the rest of the world. So you know, if one of you becomes infected, the impact is limited, but it also just gives you a knowledge of how much risk you all have because you know what each other is doing. You don't have to guess about you know, whether somebody was out on a date or you know, at the gym or something like that. Um, I think just giving people that information is so powerful. And to take it back one more time to the sex analogy, <laughs> I think if people feel ashamed about what they're doing or embarrassed about hanging out with people outdoors, they're gonna do it indoors or they're gonna do it you know, without telling anybody else or they're gonna hide from people who they're hanging out with that they've hung out with with someone else. And I think giving it the sort of Uh, in premature of a health official, you know, saying, here's what the concept is, here's how you can do it, gives people a little bit more comfort to uh, just say exactly, you know, be honest about what they're doing.
0: Well, William writes, realistically, my pod consists of pretty much the Western hemisphere. And with few exceptions, that applies to all of us. I have yet to know of a single person who's been 100% in compliance with the lockdown. It's not realistic, For most of us to do this. Robert asks, how about just going for a hike with two or four friends, not in a pod or bubble, but staying six feet apart, all drive separately? It's an interesting question, um, Dr. Pond, because it almost makes me wonder hearing what Christina is saying and these questions from Robert, you know, what's safer? Is it safer to have a limited germ bubble if you're really good at just staying with those people in your pod? Or is it safer to do physical distancing of six feet with whomever um, and and doing activities?
2: So it's a great question. And I think, you know, there's, um, there's different trade-offs for all of this, but I, you know, I would agree that uh, meeting someone outdoors and staying physically distanced while moving and having face coverings is very low risk. So again, trying to um, give people tools uh, and empower them with that information. Uh, And, um, you know again, walking through some of those principles I think uh and, and we're also trying to sort of gradually gradually introduce these ideas of the of what are lower and high risk and also gradually sort of give people um the opportunity to do more of the things that are potentially um, more of a risk. So I think, you know, someone else brought up that, you know, as a household sort of support group that they are indoors with each other, and and the total number of people, I guess, is you know, all of these are different factors that weigh in. How many people are you in close contact with? And so some households might already be six people, and so their group has become six people that are acting like a household. Um, So I think there's different trade-offs in every level, Um, and I think the most important point to me as a a public health official is being able to give people the number knowledge and the tools to empower themselves and and acknowledging, again, that people sort of need this and trying to do it safely and minimizing, again, the total number of contacts um, for some, the duration of contacts, or if you're going to have a smaller number of contacts for a longer period of time, then that's, you know, probably a good trade-off.
0: And I know that health officers in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, communicate with each other. So do you see other counties adopting Alameda's guidelines? Uh,
2: Are you talking with them uh, about it? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about it. I believe actually Contra Costa also had come out with it maybe even a few days before we did it, but maybe didn't label it a social bubble in the same way or it wasn't as prominent. Um, and uh, I haven't seen for sure sort of the timing of how, and how formal the other jurisdictions are, are going to be talking about this, but we've definitely all talked about the mm-hmm. concept, um, and again, the model that New Zealand had, and and the overall concept as well of harm reduction, again, increasingly knowing that, um, you know, someone else pointed out that not everyone is complying. Um, there are sort of strict rule followers, and there's people who are risk-takers, and we're trying to land people in between, uh, and again, empower people with information needed, Um, And for us, from the other public health perspective on this is, again, minimizing the number of contacts that might be exposed. So, um, you know, just like someone was saying with, you know, those uh, games that are played with M&Ms and and seeing, you know, how many people might be infected. We really want to minimize the duration of contacts and number of people that are uh, exposed to each other.
0: Well, let me go to Bernice in San Francisco. Hi, Bernice.
2: I
1: am uh, here to ask a question about uh, what do you do if you make a mistake? I'm a grandmother. I let my uh, five-year-old grandson uh, play in a park uh, with some children who were um, playing baseball. It was older boys, and they wanted to teach him how to play baseball. I let him do it, and then realized shortly afterwards when Papa showed up that um, it was not a good idea. Uh, what do I do?
0: Hmm. Bernice, thanks. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you, Christina Cotterucci, what you think about that.
3: That's really hard, and I really hope that um, your grandson's father was understanding. Um, I I think the most conservative measure would be to you know, quarantine for two weeks, which is sort of the recommended um, time span that people have suggested, you know, if if you come in contact with a a risky situation, quarantine for two weeks. And by that time, you should know whether you have coronavirus or not. Um, I think everybody has to make their own decisions, though. That's certainly not an option for a lot of people, you know, if he needs to go to childcare or something. Um, I think the most important thing for anybody to do in that situation is to just be understanding that mistakes happen, um, and also be honest when mistakes do happen, because if you end up coming into contact with somebody, and either you find out that they've been exposed to coronavirus, or you were just out in a crowd and sort of lost yourself for a minute, um, you know, just be able to communicate that to the other people in your pod, um, because otherwise, the you know everyone doesn't have the information that they need to make the best decisions for themselves
0: yes cuz you could actually I mean, be affecting
4: their health if it's short birds right part part of what i what i'm part of what i hear in this is is really an opportunity for us to learn how to have um stronger relationships with people right there's a kind of communication that's required um to admit that you made a mistake to be honest with it to be honest about it and then if you're you know kind of hearing that from somebody who you're who you're connected to for you to be able to hear that and um and then together figure out what it is how you want to resolve it right there's not there's not one answer to kind of what the, yeah. what you do. It really is about if, if we're in community with people or if we're creating these bubbles um, that we actually need to be deciding together what it is we want to do in response to that. So our public health officials are going to have guidelines, but part of what I heard in Christina's story when she talked to us about how um she and her wife and their friends created this their pod was that they were all thinking about and and talking about what's the science that we're looking at and what are we agreeing to Um, and that's different from what are our public health officials you know kind of telling us i think that's one piece of the puzzle but the other piece really is how are how are we being an honest open conversation with people how are we dealing with it when we make mistakes? how are we addressing our own feelings of shame um, that come up how are we able to like be um, like hear people when they make mistakes and not you know and then like move forward and I think that that, that piece is not something that we're gonna get from public health issues that's something we have to be grown people about and learn how to um, navigate but I think the opportunity here, is, you know, there's our navigation through this period of time where coronavirus is with us, but after this, we'll be in much deeper um, connection with folks. We'll be um, much more well known to people. We'll, we'll be safer because we'll have deeper community. And I think that that's really important to think about as well.
0: It's interesting, you know, your point reminds me of this comment from Karen, who writes, I've been singing for a live stream church service. We've been social distancing. I'm worried now that I know a few of us have attended protests. Two people in the group stayed home last Sunday and one was tested. Does someone on your panel have recommendations? I'm not sure I want to go this Sunday and wonder what I should do. So I guess somebody, you know, in a group that she socially distances with ended up going to protests and now she's not feeling comfortable. And I don't know if she's asking a health question or or more of a communication (laughs) question, as you were getting at Mia Britsong. But it is this just interesting sort of tension that we all have to address in ourselves. Then there's this other comment from Nina who writes, when schools open, won't these social bubbles literally burst? What do we do then? And I found that interesting and related to what you were saying as well, because I had read this piece, um, Mia Britsong, about how these social bubbles or pods could potentially also offer models for how schools do things. For example, mm-hmm. maybe putting kids from the same neighborhoods or who are, who are potting together together in classes or things yeah. like that. Like,
4: do you yeah, see I mean, that transition? Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. opportunity here for us to get really creative about how we're going to address the tension between like the absolute reality that what, is the safest thing to do is for us to not be around other people, but like physically, but the mental health reality, the economic reality that we actually do need to be together. Um, and I think figuring out what all of those things look like, I would love for our you know, for our public health officials, for our governments, for our school districts to really be thinking creatively and actually learning from the communities of people who have had to address many of these things prior to um, Corona. Um, I think about queer communities, I think about specifically trans folks, um, certainly the folks who are dealing with the HIV crisis um, in the 80s. Um, like I said, the BDSM community, I feel like there's, there are faith communities who are really good, like the Quakers at thinking about consensus. Um, there are indigenous folks who have practices of coming to, um, agreement with each other. So there's a lot of wisdom that exists in lots of communities who don't tend to be heard from or, or asked about their wisdom very, very much. And I feel like those are places we really need to look to inform, um, what kinds of systems we put in place Mm -hmm. moving forward.
0: Well, let me go to Danielle in San Carlos. Hi, Danielle.
1: Hi. My question is, what about people who've already had COVID and how would the pod model sort of apply to them?
0: Hmm. Does it change the pod rules, Dr. Pon, if you've had COVID? So, um, a couple
2: comments on that. So, when, um, when someone has been infected, we do have, you know, very strict rules about isolation and when we presume you are infectious, and typically right now the science is telling us that you're infectious likely for up to about 10 days after you first had symptoms or if someone didn't have symptoms from when they were first tested. Uh, so that 's when we will actually recommend a actually a legal isolation order, and we have these blanket isolation orders for people that we contact after they are tested positive and we 're um, notified about that so So you do want to stay absolutely away from other people for that ten days or it may be longer if you' um, if your symptoms you also need to be uh, completely better for at least three days after your symptoms have gotten over. And then after that, we presume that, um, you know, you're not infectious anymore. And I think the harder question that we're all, you know, going to see over the next months to years is once you've been infected, does that mean you are immune for, you know, are you immune for just a few months? Could you be reinfected or are you immune for lifetime? And that's the question we don't know the answer to yet. Um, And I quickly wanted to just comment on one of the other, some of the other conversation too about I think the other way to think about this is all of us do take our own risk assessment into our own behaviors or potentially the ones that um for our families or our loved ones and then this is another layer um, that impacts others around you. Um, so, you know, even smoking is another good public health example of people, you know, might be making their own risk, and for a long time people really said, well, this is my decision about my own body, um, but then it also had an impact on others around them. So I think this is, you know, another framework for people to think about. Uh, and we are working really closely with schools and trying to come up with classrooms as being bubbles and trying to really minimize mixing huh. across classrooms. So, you know, we are talking with the superintendents weekly about that and coming up with school guidance very much based on similar concepts.
0: Well, let me go to caller Corey in San Francisco next. Hi, Corey.
1: Um, Hi. I have um, ME-CFS, which leaves me immune-compromised, and the consensus is it would make me much worse if I got this. And I have an 11-year-old daughter who, of course, is desperate to socialize. And we have a family that has a kid who is her best friend um, and a good friend of ours, and they are taking almost equal risks with us, um, but not quite. They're a little bit more risky than we are. I mean, we're wiping down our mail. We're staying six feet away with masks on. We're going grocery shopping every two weeks. And they're just doing a little bit more than that. They're going to, to pick up, you know, like beer from a bar in a container once a week through a crowded sidewalk. And their thing is, you know, where the communication is great. We're, we're close. It's not a problem in that way. The idea that they could potentially be the cause of me getting more sick or dying because of this is enough that they don't want to take the risk on my behalf, even though I might be okay taking the risk. And so it's, 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 a, it's a unique situation, but it's, it's a, it's a, I'm sure that there are people who have, you know, elderly family or whatever that people aren't willing to be responsible for somebody else's immunocompromised or elderly person.
0: Yes, but I find it interesting that you, Corey, sound like you are willing to take the risk, like you're okay with it.
1: I mean, their risk is only slightly worse. I, I mean,
0: yeah. It, but it sounds it, like you've decided it, it, you're. Okay. It's a. It would be okay with you if they decided to.
1: My, my thought was maybe for a month to huh. take the, the slight extra risk so that our kids could see each other because our kids, you know, like. You know, it's it's hard to be an 11-year-old in this situation. And and my daughter's watching her fa- friends have slumber parties and birthday parties that are completely not masked, completely not, you know, people are, are just throwing everything to the wind. And she's been so, you know, we've all been so careful. And she, of course, has to be 10 times more careful to protect me.
0: Yeah. This really, thank you, Corey. This really gets at Christina Kararucci. What you were talking about is, while we'll have the public health guidelines and and Mia Bertzong as well, actually, you know, it really is. Then there's the other level of conversation, which is really with each other and and how we're going to interpret and use them and, and really gauge what's right for us. Um, and we've gotten a lot of questions around, you know, whether certain situations are okay. So I'm going to try to run through some of these fairly quickly, uh, Dr. Pon. But uh, this listener writes, a friend of mine invited me over for a visit. I've been limiting my exposure since March and wearing masks in public. She admitted she's going out on dates. Should I ask for more details to make a better decision? I'm not sure I want to visit with her in close contact. And then Sandra asks, my son and his band are coming to record nearby. I won't let them stay here, so they've rented a house. Am I foolish to let them visit for meals outside with masks and personal space? They do not necessarily practice safe COVID guidelines. (laughs) So any thoughts for this friend in terms of the safety of seeing somebody who uh, they know date and Sandra's son's meeting with her band? with his bandmates outside with masks. Sure.
2: I think think my my response is that, uh, you know, again, the decisions that you can also make are about um, uh, that interaction of visiting someone else. So if it's outdoors and people are six feet or further than six feet apart, and especially if eating, you might want to be a little bit further because you won't have the face coverings. but, But if you can, you know, have the sort of least risk there, I'd say it is relative, it's relatively safe to be, again, six feet apart, face covering mm-hmm. on if you want to um, socialize in that way, which is why we're sort of starting with that as the, the base guideline. Instead of, say,
0: making a pod, a committed pod. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Brad writes, can your guests comment on the role testing can factor into safe socializing? If tests had fast, reliable results, wouldn't we be able to socialize safely without masks and social distancing, Dr. Pond?
2: So there's um, both the the practicalities of that, right? So a test is at one point in time. So um, if you were able to test immediately before every interaction you were going to have, but, you know, at any moment you could be incubating. And as someone, as we were talking about, you can incubate anywhere from a couple days up to two weeks later. Um, So it's, it's reassuring in that moment, but there's some practicalities, again, about, about testing uh-huh. and how often you can do that. Certainly in high-risk settings, we're now recommending that, you know, all staff in the skilled nursing facilities are tested, you know, periodically over and over because that's a high-risk setting for um, transmission to a very vulnerable population. Um, I do think there's going to be, you know, uh, easier testing in the future. There's some looking at saliva testing, and and also if it can be a faster turnaround. As you, um, as was mentioned, there that that technology is improving as well as far as fast turnaround. But there's just going to always going to be some practicalities. I think about, you know, how often would you really need to test every individual, and is that practical, and how can we implement that?
0: Well, I'd love to get either Mia or um, Christina's response to Barbara who writes, what's your advice for older adults or people with a health condition who'd like to create a pod but are worried about infection?
3: I would say from my perspective, It would make sense to since I assume this person is taking very few risks due to, you know, their age or their condition to find other people who are also taking very few risks, whether that means, you know, making a very, very small bubble of just two or three people um, who rarely leave the house um, or being simply on the same page with people who are willing to take that extremely conservative approach to isolation with you.
0: And Mia Birdsong, to Corey's point about having her daughter, um, her 11-year-old, and wanting her child to be able to engage with people, if you are not able to make a pod or there may be reasons that a pod isn't, isn't something that might work for you, um, what are some socially distanced activities that you
4: can do with kids that you found? So, you know, I mean, obviously there is the, the, the zoom call. Um, (laughs) There have been a lot of those. My daughter who is almost 15, um, has Friday zoom calls with her friends and they don't actually talk the whole time. Sometimes they're like doing other stuff. They're just kind of have their screens on and are in each other's presence. Um, you know, there's there's obviously less risk when kids are outside and farther away. Um, mm. You know, part of what I'm hearing in these questions is a desire to have definitive answers. Um, and the fact is that there is, you know, as Christina pointed out earlier, there there aren't any. Um, the the science is. So we're learning you know the science the, our scientists are learning things as this progresses um there is no no risk situation there's no kind of context that you can kind of create for yourself that is going to um like clearly not ever allow anybody who's in a group of people to get corona i think part of it is that we we are really not um we really want definitive answers, but what we really need to do is ask ourselves um, what we're comfortable with. So I think yes. about this older woman who just asked this question about creating a pod. And I think like first, what she needs to do is like, you know, like journal about what kinds of risks she's willing to take and what kinds of risks she's not willing to take. Yes. And really engage deeply
0: with yourself. It's such a good point, And I really hope that we, in, in the space where we can't give necessarily definitive answers that... Uh, that what listeners walked away with today was some some wisdom and, and some experience that they can learn from. So thank you, Christina, Mia, and Erica Pond. I'm Mina Kim.
4: Funds for the production of forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.